0: Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad free on Amazon Music, included with Prime.
1: Welcome, 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 welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show Podcast.
0: So, uh, Veterans Affairs Minister Lawrence McCauley and his Deputy Minister Paul Ledwell essentially are accusing uh, Canadian Armed Forces veteran Christine Gauthier of not telling the truth. Now, Ms. Gauthier testified before the Veterans Affairs Committee in Parliament that she was offered MAID when speaking with a VAC caseworker. Ms. Gauthier also competed for Canada in the 2016 Rio de Janeiro Paralympics and the Invictus Games. She wrote a letter to Justin Trudeau and VAC Minister Lawrence McCauley about her experience with the VAC caseworker, and now the minister and the deputy minister, well, they just, uh, they're not aware of the letter. They can't find it. They don't know what, they don't know what to say except that they seem to be accusing Ms. Gauthier of not telling the truth. Christine, thank you for coming on the program. How are you?
1: I'm good. Okay, thank you.
0: When you hear that, when you hear Mr. McCauley say, he never heard from you, he has no record of hearing from you, and uh, there's no record of you being told that uh, a VAC caseworker had suggested that uh, aid maid was available to you, how does that make you feel?
1: Well, I'm sure glad that I, when I send a letter to them that I always send a registered mail with the proof of delivery.
0: <laughs> yeah, you kept that, didn't you?
1: Yes, I did that.
0: So there's also those and
1: uh, I don't know, I'm I'm <laughs> I'm shocked and discouraged and a whole bunch of things coming up yeah. all at the same time. Yeah. But not surprised, I would say, after everything else.
0: So can you remind us what it, why you called, why you contacted VAC? What did you need from Veterans Affairs Canada?
1: Well, actually, my file is the one sad one as well, like probably every other <laughs> veterans the file. Um, it's been an ongoing um uh, uh, fight for twenty four years basically i've been accepted as a, a veteran in nineteen ninety six and i've had to fight for every everything for the right to live basically since since nineteen ninety six or nineteen ninety eight sorry when i became um uh, when i i was uh uh, released from the army and became uh eligible under under VAC. Mm-hmm. So it's been um at first like you know the 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 uh, recognition of the the, the, the pension uh, the 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 illnesses uh then Having equipment, uh, wheelchairs, whatever, for and then just the ball rolling each year. As everybody has mentioned already before, probably to you as well, each year we get these letters where we have to or reinforce that we're still disabled and and so on and so on. So it's yeah. been 24 years in the making.
0: Oh. You know, I've heard this uh, quite a few times from veterans, that it's an ongoing, it's a never-ending cycle. Of contact from VAC and trying to just maintain what you've been able to establish, or, and and sometimes with with great difficulty to get them on, to understand and, and accept what the challenges are that you're that, that the veteran is facing. Do, do you remember? I'm sure you remember. What what were the circumstances under which this caseworker brought up medical assistance in dying to you? Okay, and
1: again, I will I will uh, say it as it was. I didn't realize it was. In French. So now I am going to use my own word translating this. But it was during a call where I was contacted again to make a follow up in my entire file, stating how this was ridiculous because um, you need to know um, I'm I'm waiting for the last five years for uh, an elevator to get in my house. So. If for the past five years, and this as well is a renewal of equipment so whoever has veteran, they know that the once normally when you have equipment uh granted, the renewals are just supposed to be a, a, an easy apparently process of just getting a renewal done at the time so this is a renewal of equipment that started up as in twenty eighteen and so i've been- I call them back again saying how. This is ridiculous. I just can't keep going on like this. It has to be resolved. I just can't do this anymore. I'm so discouraged. I'm so depressed. And the person just said, well, you know, if you're this depressed and you're just about discouraged and can't go on anymore, you know you have the right to die. Okay. So this is the wording and this is how it happened. Now, like I said, because it has been miss. Um, mis- miss uh miss uh, my my words were uh twisted at some point through this uh there was no it was uh, i wrote them a letter like you said at the opening to justin Trudeau and to minister McCauley, um stating that this is ridiculous this has to end, and if they will not how they will not provide me the the right to uh, to live with the equipment i need but they will help me die so those is what i brought in
0: after you know it it's just stunning to hear that and you're not the only person who has been suge- that's been suggested to um the, the, i mean macaulay uh, admits to 4 and uh who's i mean i I might might have been born at night, but it wasn't last night if there were four there's more than four that just that's just that's just logical thinking but do you do you get the same i mean do you think he's accusing you of lying?
1: no that's what it seems from uh from from is from what I can hear and read and that's why I try not to <laughs> not to go too much into it i Mm -hmm. Also, what it seems is that what he had claimed was that uh, after looking into my file, there was never any contact from me to them. I mean, how ridiculous is this when I have the the letter right there that that at the commission they had taken uh, pictures that that day of my declaration, December 1st. But also, um, I'd like to point out that I didn't even know of any other cases until I was asked to go and speak at this commission on December 1st from um, on the subject of um, this new subcontracting that they're giving out to mart. So as I printed out um, some uh, declaration on what was this all about and getting ready for my testimony, that's when I had seen also that there was this uh, these uh, people that had brought up um, about being told these comments as well. And as I was reading on this, and it was stating that it was just, uh, well, basically, uh, they may have been four allegations, but it was just really that one case. And I, right away, it went like, oh my God, this is crazy. Like, apparently they made a an investigation, an RCMP investigation on this. And how with everything and that has been going on in my file that I have been in contact with General Natinsuk when he was uh this, with with Macaulay with that how oh, come I've never been contacted after all this was in there. I it is I mean it just proves how likely their investigations can be. And the more and more that I am gathering all my my papers and my books I mean, the only logical explanation in this is they voluntarily buried me. There's no uh, how. How in 24 years, all the letters I have sent, all the people helping me around, because I am lucky. Right in the past five years, I was getting help from Saint Tom's people. Without them, how how I through all this still. That I've just been buried in the system. It, it, it is completely ridiculous.
0: Do you have any sense where this is going now?
1: Mm, no, not really. Right now, I, unfortunately, <laughs> I'm, I'm gathering all my my proof to to send them um some to someone safe. Yeah. Uh, sorry, I, I but I. I I have COVID since Sunday, so it's been very uh, hard trying to get um, uh, the capacity to go through all this at the same yeah, time. Yeah, no, I understand. But um, uh, I, I don't know where it's going to go, but I it has to lead somewhere because this is ridiculous. There it are is. way too many uh, veterans yeah. dying, quitting, not getting the help and services they need. Yeah.
0: Well, I can tell you. That... It has
1: to, to to lead to something.
0: Mark Meinke is a Canadian Armed Forces veteran and a host of Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. We've spoken with Mr. Meinke previously about veterans who've been suggested it's been suggested to them by Veterans Affairs Canada caseworkers that they maybe want to consider accessing medically uh, medical assistance in dying. Mark, thanks for coming on. We just spoke with Christine Gauthier, and it's it's difficult to listen to everything that's happened to her. You know her story well, Mr. Macaulay, saying he has no record of hearing from her. What is what does Christine Gauthier's story say to you?
2: Well, it says to me that you're not the only. She's not the only one. Um, when this first came out, Roy, as we had talked about uh, when Veteran Number One came out. They swore on a stack of Bibles there was only one veteran, and that was it. And then another one came out, and then they did a quick uh, backpedaling. and says, okay, so uh, there's two veterans. No, wait, there's four veterans, but there's only one case manager. But what we've uncovered is that there's no possible way that there's only one case manager. My count right now, right from all the work I've been doing, is we're at, at least seven veterans and five case managers. And that's just based on the work that I've been doing. So if a one-man show can uncover this much, it's hard to believe that uh, Veterans Affairs couldn't uncover more than what they have if they actually wanted to. I don't believe there is an actual investigation going on, as Minister McCauley has said. I think they're doing everything they can to bury it.
0: And the same M.O. each time, yes?
2: It's the same. Um, Different case managers from different provinces So that's how I know there's different case managers. Each of these um, veterans are in different provinces. So BC, Alberta, Ontario, Quebec, so far. And uh, whenever I get a call from Veterans Affairs Canada, it's out of the Calgary office because I'm just south of Calgary. And that's just how the system works is my understanding. So the fact that these veterans are all spread out shows that it cannot possibly be the same case manager like they keep claiming. So that's, That's my logic on it anyway, and I haven't had anybody uh, show me any evidence to the contrary.
0: Mark, what's happened since you testified at the Veterans Affairs Committee or or Veterans Affairs Canada Parliament hearings? What's happened since you testified?
2: Well, more people have started to come forward. Um, After people saw me testifying in Ottawa, that's when Ruth came out. But unfortunately, Bruce is not willing to testify on the 12th here, which is very, very unfortunate. So all we have from Bruce is his voice on my show for about 10 minutes telling his story. And his story is just like veteran number one, who won't come forward at all. And I was basically testifying on his behalf. So really, the only one that we have who has come forward with her actual name is Christine. Now, I went to the RCMP just yesterday um, because Minister McKelly said, hey, I've I've referred this to the RCMP. Well, forgive me if I'm a little bit distrustful. So I went to the RCMP myself and I said, hey, um, I know of some criminal actions, pretty sure they're criminal. So if if there's not an open file already, how about we open a file? And so I'm pursuing it criminally from my end hoping that something sticks. But unfortunately, it looks like there's a loophole, Roy. It is only criminal for you and me to counsel somebody to um, consider suicide. But if you are a healthcare worker working within that scope, um, social worker, and I think there would be an argument that veteran caseworkers could be perhaps considered social workers, there's a loophole in the 2023 criminal code. They all get a pass. So they can cancel, cancel suicide all the live long day. Uh, but anybody else does it, it's up to 14 years in prison.
0: When it comes to MAID, and everybody in this country is talking about MAID now, medical assistance in dying, the developments uh, have taken place. Mental illness as a sole reason for medical assistance in dying by mid-March of next year is a national controversy, I'm sure you're aware. And as Canada's health care peels away medical assistance in, die, in dying becomes an increasing issue. Dr. Stephanie Green is co-founder and president of the Canadian Association of Maid Assessors and Providers. She's a medical advisor to the BC Ministry of Health, Maid Oversight Committee, and on the clinical faculty at UBC and the University of Victoria. She's the author of This Is Assisted Dying. Dr. Green, thank you very much for taking the time. What, how do you react to to veterans being told by caseworkers, well, you can always access MAID.
3: Well, I, I, uh, although I'm not intimately familiar with the details of that case, even just from what I read in the media and what I've heard reported on various shows, I, I think it's clear that somebody's overstepped. Uh, it seems clearly an inappropriate offer uh, from someone in a position that uh, was not, uh, not meant to be offering that kind of care. There's a difference between a caseworker or administrative clerk uh, offering something that they shouldn't be doing versus a professional duty by a clinician yeah. in certain circumstances to, to bring up the option. So this so is what, seems to me that is yeah inappropriate.
0: Yeah, so this is what I wanted to start with. Who is eligible for MAID, and what are the rules? What are the requirements in order to receive MAID? Let's deal with some misconceptions here.
4: Sure. So
3: it's a good question. So in order to have an assisted death in this country, you do need to be over 18 years of age. You need to be eligible for Canadian government-funded health care. Uh, you need to make a voluntary request. So no one can coerce you into this. It has to be from yourself. And you, the, the patient themselves has to be the one to ask. Nobody can ask on anyone's behalf. It has to be the patient. They need to have the capacity to make this request, meaning that they understand what's wrong with them, what their treatment options are, including palliative care and the outcomes of those treatments and the outcome of an assisted death being irreversible death. And they need to have what the law calls a grievous and irremediable condition, meaning that they have a serious and incurable illness, disease or disability that puts them in what the law calls an advanced state of decline in capability or function and that they're suffering intolerably in a way that they deem Um, you know, uh, there's no way that it can be uh, addressed in a way that they deem tolerable or acceptable. So it's quite a robust system. Those are the eligibility criteria.
0: So, as you know better than most, challenges now to MAID being available for mental illness reasons only Mm -hmm. by mid-March. It's been interpreted as dangerous to people with disabilities who may be suicidal, and mental health specialists are challenging mental illness as the sole necessary reason for MAID. What do you say?
3: Well, I think the first thing we need to do is reframe the the discussion, because I think there's a, a tendency for people to think this is some sort of expansion of the law. But this is not actually that. This is truly a restoration of the rights of individuals who are suffering from mental health disorders. You have to remember, our Supreme Court made a decision in 2015 offering the possibility of assisted dying to people who meet all the required eligibility criteria. And that included That included people with mental health disorders. They weren't particularly excluded. Nobody was based on diagnosis. But the government created a law that essentially excluded people with a mental health disorder as their sole condition uh, by requiring their death to be reasonably foreseeable. And that requirement, of course, was challenged and removed from the law in 2021. So in some ways, I mean, you know, in actual fact, this is a restoration of those rights to, to an often stigmatized population. So I think it's important to contextualize this. Do, um,
0: sorry, yeah, go that that ahead, please. Said,
3: no, That being said, it is obviously a complicated matter with a lot of complexity. And granted, this is a population of our society that, has, that is potentially quite vulnerable. So we do need to be careful. The question is not whether this should be allowed. That decision's been made. The question is how. How can we do it safely uh, and well and, and protecting those who need
0: protecting are you satisfied that those uh, protections are in place?
3: Well, I think it's a, a you know I think we've got some experience since 2021. You know, we've been seeing patients whose death is not reasonably foreseeable. We've already come up against the complexity of that. We are learning about the safeguards and how to uh, how to um, implement them. And I, I I do think the safeguards are adequate uh, as they're laid out. I do think we will need some more. Um, some more experience and more uh, discussion, education and training about how to apply them specifically to those who have mental health disorders. But I do think the safeguards in them themselves seem to be sufficient. And the expert panel that was written and tabled in May of 2021 suggested uh, 19 recommendations, but did not suggest any new particular safeguards be added.
0: So uh, what you just said leads me to this question. Do doctors uh, and other healthcare professionals, to your knowledge, actively suggest made to patients, or does the initiative have to come from the patient?
3: I really appreciate the question. I think uh, the, the, the answer is that if a patient brings up the issue of wanting to die, it's the role of the physician or anyone to explore what they mean by that. Is it that they want to die now? Is it that they want help to die? Is it that they're hopeless? Or is it that they're seeking information about something else, palliative care, other resources? But that aside, that's not really what you're asking. It is the role of the clinician in certain circumstances when a patient is discussing end-of-life options, for example, or when they're discussing what we call goals of care discussions, when they're talking about what's most important to them at end-of-life. In certain circumstances, it is, in fact... Not more more than appropriate, it's important and necessary for clinicians to bring up this as one of the possible end-of-life options available to them. If if an oncologist were to give a patient with cancer one option for, for chemotherapy when there were actually three available that would probably not be considered good care. And, and likewise, when someone is facing end-of-life decisions and options, if one might be palliative care or continuous sedation or MAID, it, it's up to the clinician to make sure that the patient who's interested in all of the options be offered all of the options so that they can make a truly informed decision for themselves.
0: It just seems to me that, and this isn't talked about much, and I think it should be, it, it, it can't be easy for the clinician to talk about made, It can't be an easy thing to do. Um, I've always, just from my personal definition, final act of compassionate healthcare. I know people will disagree with me, but that's my view. But it can't be easy for you as a doctor and other doctors to, to talk about it, to arrange it, and then to carry through. That, that, that must be difficult.
3: Well, there's a, you know, I don't mean to be flippant, but there's a lot that clinicians do that are difficult. This is a difficult conversation. Yeah, I guess talking so. About, talking to someone about their end-of-life options is, is always a little bit heartbreaking. Somebody's life is coming to an end. Mm-hmm. You, you want to make sure you've given the, the, the most robust information, answer all the questions. Make sure everything is, is said. Nothing's left unsaid. You know, it, it, it is a difficult conversation to have, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't do it. And, and clinicians and physicians and nurse practitioners who are fearful of doing that are doing a disservice to our patients. We, patients want these conversations. They want the information so that they can make decisions for themselves. It's an important part of what we do. Uh,
0: this is not, um, it's not an easy question, but I, I think it's relevant. Do you think that MAID may be on the increase because of the challenges Canada's health care system is facing and maybe uh, nudging people who are not receiving treatment and care that required to opt for MAID? Is that a that a relevant question?
3: Well, I think it's a relevant question and an important question, but I think it's it might be a little misleading. I think that we are seeing increased numbers of Canadians asking for maid, and I, I, I'm not convinced that it's for the reasons you you worry, you rightly worry about. I think that it is is still relatively new here. Um, we've not, you know, we've we've seen problems with accessing MAID in several regions of the country. We see that uh, being addressed in some regions. We're slowly seeing more clinicians being willing to be involved or up until now we have. Um, So I think the increase in number of people asking for and receiving MAID will continue. It's incredibly important to remember that the questions that we're grappling with about mental health disorders and and patients with chronic complex diseases, we need to address those issues. But 97.8% Of all people who accessed MAID last year, that's the vast majority did so along what we call track one. These are patients whose deaths are reasonably foreseeable. Hmm. In that sense, uh, a somewhat more straightforward evaluation from a medical point of view. And that is the overwhelming majority of people who are asking for MAID and will continue to do so. So that doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about the smaller percentage. We absolutely need to get it right. But I expect we'll continue to see an increasing number of people along the track one route uh, accessing MAID. So numbers will go up.
0: What are the greatest, uh, if there are two or three really significant misconceptions about MAID, what are they?
3: Hmm. I think one is that people, uh, people think that people access need for uncontrollable pain. That's not generally the case. That is certainly less than the majority of cases and uh, very far down the list. The majority of people seem to describe their suffering uh, as um, uh, no longer able to do the activities that bring meaning to their life and no longer able to, uh, have, to be independent in what we call their activities of daily living, taking care of themselves. Uh, so that's more common. Uh, palliative care does a really good job with addressing pain. So that's one common misperception. I think the other misperception is a little bit self centered for me, and you were alluding to that earlier. You know, is this difficult work? Is this morose work? Is this something that shouldn't be done by clinicians? And I would say that as difficult as this work is, and it is intense and emotional work, it's also proven itself to be incredibly meaningful work uh, because patients are very grateful for the mere possibility of this option, uh, very grateful family members and and and, and people uh, to have the possibility. So it's turned out to be meaningful work and not morbid or negative uh, in all circumstances. Of course, it's always sad uh, and, and can be very intense and emotional, but not always as negative as people think.
0: And Dr. Green, your sense is that... Uh I don't want to call it mainstream but uh, but made is going to become more of a fact of healthcare delivery life in this country than it is now.
3: I, yeah. yeah, I think Canadians are pretty clear that they want this option at end of life, um, and they are choosing it in certain circumstances. Uh, still very few, still only 3.3% of all deaths every year uh, attributed to MADE. But I, I don't think that's going to get smaller. Uh, I think it might continue to raise a little bit, uh, similar to our colleagues in, in Europe where this is available, and in the Netherlands, you know, it's over 4%. So I think we'll continue to see that. This will be, will be, continue to be a, uh, Uh, an available form of health care in this country.
0: Crises in Canada's health care, Canada's children's and pediatric hospitals are running short, and many have run short of beds already. So what's driving this crisis, and what options are available? And how long could this be expected to last? And what can parents and caregivers do I've received quite a few emails to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com from parents saying, what can I do? My child is okay now, but I'm worried. There's also, you'll find on Global News, Canada's premier's news conference of yesterday, and the premiers are asking for more money from the federal government for health care costs. Well, I ask myself, how much more money do you need? How much more money do we actually need to pump into healthcare? Is it a shortage of cash, a shortage of money, or is it just the system that isn't working properly? It's a legitimate question. And how significantly is Canada's healthcare delivery system spiraling downward? Which patients are most affected and and how directly? All right, let's talk to uh, Dr. Catherine Smart about all of this. She's the past president of the Canadian Medical Association. She's been on this program on a number of occasions. Dr. Smart, thank you. How are you?
5: I'm well. Good to be back.
0: Good to have you back. Let me just ask this question out of the gate. How stressed, and you and I have talked about this, how stressed is healthcare in Canada today?
5: You know, honestly, right, I think it's as stressed as it's ever been. Um, you know, we're just seeing ongoing onslaught of patients seeking care in emergency departments and hospitals that are... Understaffed and bursting at the seams and attempt to provide care. And now, of course, it's also happening in our children's hospitals, which is new, um, and we're just seeing immense pressures across the system, huge moral distress for providers, and of course, as uh, they receiving in patients who are, are struggling to access care, whether it's in the community or in hospitals or in, in their own homes or home care, everything really feels like it's unraveling.
0: So the question is, why? Why is this going on? I mean, I hear constantly a reference to COVID and that COVID was part of our lives for two years. It still is. But it certainly was a more significant part of our lives for two years. Is this directly traceable to COVID or is it a broader issue?
5: No, I think COVID just started a stress test and a system that was already cracking, if that makes sense. You know, we've been marching in this direction for a long time. you we know, look at right now, the pediatric healthcare crisis, children's healthcare in Canada has been underfunded and under-resourced for years, and people in the field have been calling for more support resources to allow us to ebb and flow with different barrel surges that always impact children. Um, but, you know, we just haven't seen that that part of the system resourced. In terms of primary care in the community, family doctors, access to integrated teams, you know, we've been failing there for well over a decade or longer as well, and we've, we've seen that we've struggled to attract physicians into those jobs and retain them, and we've seen declining access for patients. We know we have one of the lowest uh, numbers of hospital beds per capita in the world, and um, so of course there's just very little wiggle room in the system, and then when you have something like a global pandemic and all that care that was deferred to in order to care for people with COVID, now we've got these increasing wait lists, and it's really challenging when you just already have limited resources to be able to pivot enough resources to meet the needs of people waiting and all the new people that are coming onto the list. Um, and then I just think, well, you know, working in these conditions has led to so much burnout and moral distress that we've lost a lot of people from the healthcare system, and it's not easy to create new healthcare workers, right? You can't just get an experienced now Nurse or physician or respiratory therapist or social worker overnight um, and we're seeing that strain across the workforce when you put it all together uh, you get Canadians waiting longer and longer for care and you get hospitals emergency departments and communities that are under immense pressure
0: yeah so uh, will sick people report to hospital ERs this weekend and wait hours and hours to be seen and fail to be fully diagnosed and some sent home with no resolution or even a full understanding of the condition which caused them to go to the hospital in the in the first instance is the system so stressed that this is going to happen repeatedly this weekend
5: well, you know, I think it is already happening. You know, we're hearing stories of people dying in waiting rooms, you know, being resuscitated on the floor of the hospitals. Um, you know, uh, there's no question. I think that despite the efforts of the people in the system who I know are doing everything they can to care for the patient in front of them, when you're under this much stress and the waits are that long, there are going to be harms and bad outcomes, and that is already happening. And, you know, and the other challenge, of course, is with when you do have people coming to emergency departments with chronic issues because they haven't been able to get them in the community, you know there there's the emergency department's really not set up to manage those issues, and I think that's some of the frustration you hear from folks. Understandably, when they've gone in with something and they leave feeling like, well, no one really helped me, and it's it's because you know that system isn't really designed for that. Um, especially when there's the onslaught of all the really critically and acutely ill people that that defer attention from folks that are there that absolutely have medical concerns, but maybe not ones that are acutely life threatening. So, I think we're just not our system right now is just not adequately meeting those access issues for folks Um, and I think that's where we're hearing so much frustration from Canadians and you know just recently hearing that right now the healthcare system is the number one concern of Canadians and I think rightfully so. Yeah, rightfully
0: so. So Dr. Smart, the adult reality we've talked about and it's not a good it's not a good situation. Hundreds of thousands of surgeries delayed or cancelled. Patients not able to get the treatment that they require. But what about the children's reality? What's going on What many people want to know and their answers or or positions or points of view floating around, what is causing the situation, the crisis realities in the children's hospitals and the pediatric centers in this country?
4: Well, we really have two things going on. You know, one is the viral surge that's happening right now that's overwhelming the emergency departments, the ICUs and the wards. And and that's happening really because we have this this exponential rise and circulation of respiratory viruses right now, driven at this moment in time primarily by influenza, which has come on early and strong with just a vertical spike in terms of the number of cases and, and a very low number of children who are immunized for flu A. So you can be vaccinated as young as six months old But right now, fewer than one in four children are vaccinated. So we've got this just huge amount of circulating flu, a lot of vulnerable children, um, and that's causing a lot of visits to, to hospital and admissions to hospital. And then in addition, we've still got RSV out there, which is the leading cause of hospitalization in young children. There's still COVID, and there's a whole series of other respiratory viruses that are also in the community. And you know what? Because of the public health protections, which were important and good, and we need to continue to be able to leverage public health protections we do have three cohorts of kids who just didn't get the normal exposure to these viruses because they weren't circulating in the community in the way they typically do. So, so we don't have that sort of population immunity. So, you know, what we're kind of, how we're describing is it's like three cohorts of kids all started going to daycare at the same time and they're all getting sick simultaneously. So that's really driving that, that volume. And of course, because we've dropped public health protections and we're just not really seeing a willingness of Canadians to mask or necessarily choose to be vaccinated with the flu or get their covid boosters that's also contributing to this high circulation of infectious disease and in lots of sick kids uh, and then the other piece to the puzzle is you know children are already waiting a very long time for services even before this surge people might be surprised to know that children actually wait longer than adults for surgery, diagnostic, imaging, mental health supports. And now, of course, all of these resources are having to be pivoted to meet the demand of kids who are acutely ill, which is only increasing the wait times and access to care for kids needing other services. So it's really putting a huge strain both on children's hospitals and community hospitals. Um, and there's many children who are not able to access care for other really important health issues as well. So the whole thing is, is really creating a, a crisis and a lot of stress on the provider. Who are trying to care for kids.
0: Yeah. And then there's the issue of the medications, the lack of availability of medications that many of the kids require. Is there a timeline that we're looking at here? Then, is the flu season, once the flu season runs its course, then the situation will level off somewhat? Is that an expectation or a realistic expectation?
1: Yeah,
4: at some point, things will level off. But I think it's important for people to know they can be a part of making that happen sooner by being vaccinated for the flu, getting their COVID booster or their primary series if they haven't done so, masking in indoor settings, staying home when sick. All those things will help blunt the spread of these respiratory viruses. Absolutely, they're seasonal viruses, you know, and eventually they're going to kind of taper off. The peak will come and things will slowly sort of improve. But we can do that a lot quicker and we can have a lot fewer people get sick if we take some of those basic, basic public health measures in the meantime.
0: Let's get back to our uh, overall health care system. Is the downward spiral continuing? And do you see it continuing for some period of time? And then part B to that, the premiers are asking the federal government for more money, $28 billion. Is more money the answer? Is it part of the answer? Is the answer really just better distribution, better delivery of health care? Is it a combination of all of those?
4: Yeah, it's such an important question. You know, I think the downward spiral is going to continue here for some time until we see a clear plan and action on some of the items that we're putting forward as solutions and a commitment to actually doing something differently. So I think that's important. You know, I I think it's really frustrating, the dialogue right now between the provincial and the federal government. You know, having the premiers all come out just asking for more money when several of those provinces are sitting on a surplus. We've heard no articulation from the premiers what they're planning to do with the extra money. You know, complete pushback against the idea of any coordinated data strategy or accountability I mean, I I think as a Canadian, and I think a lot of Canadians probably feel very frustrated by this. You know, we don't want people playing politics. We want solutions. Patients have asked for politicians to prioritize health. I think what they want to see is everyone coming to the table together to solve what is a complex problem and to get past the finger-pointing and these sort of conversations where they're like, oh, just do it this, do that. Well, what are you actually going to do, right? And, you know, at the CMA, we've advanced many solutions as of many of our partner organizations. Um, and what we want to see is people coming to the table with all of us as stakeholders across the health professions, the commitment from all levels of government to say, yes, Let's pick three to five things. Let's actually take some action. We spend a lot of money on health care already. We are not seeing the outcomes we should be getting for, our, for the month. No, to spend. we're not. Could we invest more? For sure. But without a clear plan about what those dollars are going to accomplish, I worry we just end up with more of the same. Yeah.
0: Uh, I've spoken to you and I've spoken to other and previous presidents of the Canadian Medical Association, and each one has said essentially the same thing. The politicians at some point when push comes to shove – They don't listen to the CMA. It becomes a political, I don't want to call it a game, but it becomes a political reality. Healthcare becomes a political reality, and that is ultimately going to be to the detriment of the patients and to the detriment of doctors and healthcare workers. Do I have that correctly?
4: No, absolutely, and that's what's happening right now. You know, we're we're having this sort of back and forth about who's gonna pay, but where's the plan? What are you gonna actually do? Um, and so I think the conversation is sort of backwards at the moment, and I, I think it's becoming increasingly frustrating as Canadians see the healthcare system deteriorating and providers see, you know, are more and more limited in their ability to meet the needs of patients. And what we want is we want to be action and solution orientated, and those ideas are there. Uh, but we need politicians to get past the talking points and come to the table to commit to actually moving forward with transforming our healthcare system and modernizing it for the times in which we
0: live. Yeah. Have about 30 seconds, Dr. Smart. What's the advice to the to the person who's not well, just, just really not feeling well, knows something is wrong, has gone to the hospital, hasn't received a satisfactory response, has been sent home with an undiagnosed situation? What's the advice to the patient?
4: Well, I think follow up, you know, medicine, patients, symptoms evolve, people change. If you've been seen and things have gotten worse or you're not getting better, then you need to be reassessed. And many problems, you know, on the first or second look don't always get the right answer, but eventually do. Um, So I think if you're someone sitting at home and you're worried about your health, absolutely seek care, whether from your primary care provider, if you have one over a virtual care service, or if you're really unwell, absolutely go to the hospital. That's why it's there.
0: So we have the seasonal flu. And we have COVID, and we have the flu shots, and we have the COVID vaccinations, and the COVID boosters. So there's a very interesting article in The Atlantic magazine uh, from just three days ago, and the title of it is, COVID Science is Moving Backwards. It got me thinking about whether infectious diseases physicians are taking a uniform View and approach to dealing with COVID, with vaccinations and boosters. And according to this article, not really. There are many different points of view from brilliant physicians with a great history of success. Dr. Neil Rao is a brilliant physician with a great history of success, infectious diseases specialist in Halton Region in Ontario, assistant professor of medicine at the University of Toronto. And he's back with us on the program dr Rao thank you very much uh, for taking the time now there's covid and there's the annual flu are infectious diseases specialists conflicted on how to approach each as in to vaccinate or not vaccinate to issue booster shots or not issue booster shots is there conflicting opinion within the infectious diseases community
6: uh firstly thanks for the kind comments of in the intro um Conflicting opinions, I think, are partly concerns about conflicting messaging and confusing messaging. And I can see why the general populace is confused now, because even with COVID messaging, it's been awfully confusing. So it's hard for people to say, well, listen, get this vaccine, but not that one. Or if it's you're if you're a member of some sort of population group, don't get it. People just want a simple public health message: just go get the vaccine, every vaccine. I think that's a misguided strategy to sort of just say something for everyone all the time. It's, it's simple, but it's not logical. That piece in The Atlantic you were discussing, specifically referring to COVID-19 and the changing landscape we have now with a population in North America, especially in Canada, that has seen the virus, the actual virus, let alone the vaccine, coupled with the fact that almost everybody has had two doses of vaccine. We're talking about over 90% of people over age 12 having had it, the vaccine, and at least 80% of people have had the disease itself. So when you put those two things together, it's not 2020. The population is no longer naive relative to the virus from an immune system perspective. And so whatever happens with COVID, even if we get a new Greek alphabet letter, you know, Pi instead of Omicron, a new variant, we're not going to have big swells and surges in the healthcare system that we saw earlier.
0: Do we know, or more accurately, do you know the infectious diseases physicians community? Do you know conclusively what strain of COVID you're treating right now, you're dealing with right now?
6: We know what we're dealing with now, but I think the uncertainty is the future. So we know that we have a sub-variant of Omicron. Omicron has had a long run now, since December 2021, but Omicron is so good at reinventing itself that even if you had Omicron in, say, January 2022, you might be vulnerable to a new strain of Omicron that's circulating now, whatever you know number or digit we give it. The thing is, being vulnerable to infection is not the same as being vulnerable to ending up in an intensive cure unit or dying. So there's only a small subgroup of people who with reinfection, with waning or falling immunity over time from either infection or vaccination, who can end up with a bad consequence. And those are the people we should really be targeting for booster vaccinations now. What I see as a misguided strategy now is that we have simple messaging telling everyone to get a booster or for everyone to get the next iteration of the COVID-19 vaccine, the new Omicron-derived variant version. Uh, I don't think everyone needs it. And I don't think it's going to change the trajectory of the outbreak. It's not going to affect whether transmission stops. We know that now. But it will protect some people if the right people get it. The other thing we're doing is we're really pushing this hard on kids and on, on young adults. I I think, again, that population is not at big risk of that outcome. Yes, you're going to hear about long COVID. But at least from the perspective of ending up in an ICU or dying, that population is at low risk. I think it's appropriate to take stock. Now, if I were sitting in Beijing right now, I'd be speaking a different tune because that population has not had widespread disease, and there's uncertainty as to how many people have received a
0: vaccine in the high-risk groups. So the Canadian Pediatric Society is urging parents to have their children, six months of age and older, vaccinated against the flu. I'm not sure whether they're uh, advising vaccinating against COVID as well uh, or just the annual flu. You would know better than I. What do you say to that? So switching gears, different virus, the flu, as you said. So flu can be a serious problem in children, no question.
6: This is different from COVID and it can actually be deadly. I think it's the kids under two I'm most worried about rather than every child. So again, the strategy should be focused because if you offer the vaccine to every child, you kind of get a run on the bank and the wrong kid gets the vaccine versus the one who's more likely to benefit there are kids with underlying neurological and health problems there aren't many but there are some that are seen in in, in tertiary care pediatric hospitals those kids are top priority to get the 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 vaccine and also we do have an antiviral medication uh Tamiflu that can be given to children as well in the right circumstance coupled with a positive test so we're not treating just any respiratory virus, but specifically treating the flu. So there are strategies. I don't think I would exhort every child to get it. Uh, Some experts have called for every child to get it because it will stop the swell of the wave in kids. I don't think it will because I think it's too late to be deploying vaccination as a strategy to stop transmission when it comes to the flu. Unfortunately, the flu vaccine, just like the COVID-19 vaccine, does not stop transmission. To use my tired analogy, it's an airbag, not a collision prevention system. So it will protect the most vulnerable. If parents want to vaccinate their kids, by all means do it. But I think if you're looking at where going, going fishing with the fish are, you really should focus on those kids under age two. And especially if they're in daycare, they're more likely to see the virus as well. Okay.
0: You mentioned Tamiflu. Now, I haven't heard that word since 2007 when people were hoarding the stuff. <laughs>
6: Yeah, I mean, it's in the arsenal as well. I mean, the problem with that drug is it has to be given within a short duration of the onset of symptoms to even shorten the duration of the illness. And in terms of the harder endpoint of keeping kids out of hospital, if you're dealing with young kids, obviously the younger the child, there may be more benefits, but the the evidence for it working isn't so good. We had this kind of debate with a lot of those antivirals for COVID as well, like who should really get it? And do unvaccinated people from COVID benefit the same way from Paxlovid as those who are vaccinated? Uh, there's all, the same kind of debate comes up once you have a uh, some immune protection. But what we are seeing with influenza this year is a population of kids who have not been exposed uh, due to social physical distancing and, and and lockdowns and no schooling and so on. So you you have a population that has become somewhat immune naive to the flu, and that's why it is a bit of a bumper year. And we're seeing an earlier rise of the outbreak this year than usual. Usually, it would be picking up starting in mid-October, late-October. This year, it started in September, the pickup. And it actually has likely peaked even Canada-wide in the last week. doesn't mean we're, we're out of the woods, but it's once you reach the peak of an outbreak, using the vaccine to stop transmission is a misguided strategy because you reach the peak because a lot of people have seen the virus
0: already. Dr. Rao, we have a healthcare system which is... Chaotic at best. People are struggling, not getting the treatments they require. Maybe the services are just very, very difficult to obtain. What is the message that you then send at a time like that? Five million people have no family doctor. What's the responsible get vaccinated message that people should receive?
6: Well, the message for vaccination needs to be responsible. I think there's a disconnect between flu vaccine and what's going on with the healthcare system in the sense that. The healthcare system is a problem year-round, not just during flu season. Mm-hmm. The flu waves last total of 12 to 16 weeks. They go up and they go down after 12 or 16 weeks. So it's a year-round problem, not just a flu problem or an RSV problem or a COVID problem. However, I think when it comes to the vaccine, the message that needs to be given now needs to be more focused on getting the right people vaccinated rather than wasting resources in terms of buying vaccine for anyone and everyone and also wasting resources in terms of giving vaccine to anyone and everyone just because it's a good thing to do. Uh, We need to look at what the impact of an intervention is in terms of reducing impact on the healthcare system and preventing death and and, and, and morbidity and mortality. So uh, I think what we have to stop doing is just universalizing things because they sound like you're doing something we need to be more focused and strategic and we also have to look at solving a lot of the other problems in healthcare that have nothing to do with the viruses improving our uh, digital health records and digital health transformation in, in the healthcare system so we're not duplicating and repeating that Uh, and other issues like uh, making sure that people leave hospital for long-term care or alternative forms of care so we can decant and create more hospital capacity. Again, nothing to do with the virus, just a general problem we've had for years. We're always running over capacity in hospitals, even independent of COVID. There was never a good time in the healthcare system that I can remember.
0: What is your uh, assessment of what's going on in children's hospitals? Overcrowded, kids are being transferred from hospital to hospital. There's talk about um, sending children, some Canadian children, to the United States by helicopter. That story was from Ontario yesterday. How do you assess what's going on in the kids' hospitals? So the kids' hospitals are a
6: bit unique. Usually kids' hospitals are not overloaded, but respiratory virus surges can do it. So when it comes to the kids' hospitals, for sure we are seeing the impact of the virus. But I can say this, it's not going to last forever. They had, they were hit hard with the RSV due to immune debt, people, kids not having seen the virus uh, or their moms having not seen the virus. So you have a sort of an immunity gap created by COVID. And now the same sort of thing with influenza. In that case, it's a bit of a different discussion. They definitely need surge capacity planning. Other hospitals that are not, children's hospitals have to pony up and take kids longer or, older than they, or younger than they usually would take in an intensive care unit, for example. So you might have a 14-year-old in an intensive care unit in an adult hospital, like where I work, rather than being sent to a, a, a pediatric hospital. So there's some sort of capacity building that has to happen. Again, I don't think it's gonna last more than a few weeks.
0: So how is the success of a vaccine measured, whether it's the seasonal flu or whether it's COVID? Um, On the surface, that sounds like a ridiculous question, but but I'm asking if COVID is outpacing our progress in dealing with the virus. Ditto the annual flu, but to a lesser extent.
6: So the most successful vaccine I can name right off the bat is the measles vaccine or the childhood vaccines we give. Those like polio, uh, mumps, rubella, uh, diphtheria, those are the most successful vaccines because they stop the transmission of the virus for the most part. They give sterilizing immunity. Once you're dealing with the flu vaccine, the flu vaccine is preventing dangerous outcomes, especially in people at risk. So kids under age two are going to benefit more than a child who's 12 uh, or a child who's 18 years old. When it comes to the COVID vaccine, it too transiently stops transmission, but not very well. And even the latest iteration of that vaccine, it doesn't do much more benefit than the original Wuhan strain vaccine that we were giving everybody, the COVID classic vaccine, um, from the perspective of stopping infection. From the perspective of preventing bad outcomes, a small subgroup of people will benefit even from the booster and the new derived booster, be they 80 years old uh, or with an organ transplant or dialysis patients. But I think, unfortunately, when it comes to the COVID vaccine and the flu vaccine, We have to manage our expectations. And once you have a vaccine that doesn't stop transmission, the reason why you're getting the vaccine has to be considered carefully at a public policy level. In other words, just universalizing it, giving it to everyone doesn't work. We started doing this with the COVID vaccine because we thought it was stopping transmission. And because we thought that everybody was at risk of a perilous outcome, even though the risk was lower based on age, we didn't know who was going to get a bad outcome even if they were forty or fifty or thirty, for example. But now we have a different situation. So when it comes to the COVID vaccine, we can be more selective. And with the flu, we don't have a pandemic year. It's the H three N two Darwin strain, which is actually covered by the vaccine. So it's not something we've never seen before. It's just a harder hit year with more people having lost immunity to the flu.
0: Okay. So age and pre existing health conditions, are they as significant to player as now as they were a year or two years ago, when it comes to considering vaccination.
6: So you're talking about influenza, I presume. To be clear.
0: Well, yeah, either one.
6: Yeah, for influenza. So yeah, for for influenza, absolutely, and and even for COVID. In, in fact, it is it is still significant. That that whole template of with COVID of the older you are, the worse the outcome. That still applies. Of course, now we have people who are immunized, so it's not as bad as it was before. With influenza, what's different is that you have bad outcomes in young children, especially under age two, and then also as people get older and with underlying conditions. So that's where there's a parallel between the influenza and, and uh, COVID-19. But I think an age-based and a risk-factor-based strategy is much more prudent for both vaccines now. And I think you might get more buy-in from the public if we stop exporting everybody to get another dose all the time. It becomes, it becomes noise.